may be seated. I did hear from uh, Travis and Susan this morning. And I would ask that you not only would pray now for them, but that you would pray in the week and in the days to come. It's a very difficult time in their journey uh, with Micah. Um, They are facing a lot of big-time decisions, even making them now. Uh, Hopefully, we'll have some uh, news, you know, by lunch or a little after, maybe even before we leave the fellowship time, and I might be able to share any update then. But um, I was talking with Travis, and, um, you know, it's impossible for us to identify with what they go through. None of us uh, have been through exactly the situation, although some of you have been through similar situations. But it is so comforting to be able to open God's Word with a person, even over the phone, and turn to a passage like Psalm 139 or turn to a passage like Isaiah 53 like I did this morning and be able to connect with them over the Word of God about how their God and their Father knows what they face. And He knows their Son better than they know their Son. And as hard as that is for us to imagine, it's true that He knows us. He put us together. Where we see and where doctors see mistakes and uh, faulty DNA and errors, God sees glory. God sees opportunity for His name. And so to be able to challenge and to call Him to remember that in this time is so precious. And He's so precious. And Susan is to receive that and to understand it and to even praise God in their time of trial. Um, You know, I think um, I told them this, and I don't mind sharing it with you. I think of Job often when I talk with them. You know, that they they give this litany of problems and things they're facing and things are all, the world around them is doom and gloom. And then every time it ends with, but God is going to be glorified in this. And I don't understand it. And I can't give answers for it. But I don't have to have the answers. I trust Him. He's doing what's right. And that faith is an example to us. So pray with them. They, they thank you for, their pray, for your prayers. And they uh, covet your prayers. So please pray for them uh, in earnest. We've come to the close of the prologue, the beginning, the introduction in a sense to, of the book of John, the Gospel of John. John 1, 15 through 18, and we might say the close of the prologue, Christ is unique. Christ is unique. He's, the writer's going to show us that Christ is not like anything else ever to come on the scene of the world around us. John's been working to clearly show that the Word of God is uh, uh, eternal, that the Word of God is Creator, that the Word of God is is the light of men. That the Word of God, in verse 14, is the tabernacle of God among the people. And now he's going to close the section by saying the Word of God is unique, different, not like anything else. Today I want to leave you with a good understanding of the uniqueness of the Word, Jesus Christ. Remember, we've already established that it's Jesus. Although today will be the first time John uses the name Jesus we know by this uh, text here that John 1.14 and all the preceding verses are also about Jesus. So I want you to leave today with a, a clear understanding of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in three ways. Three take-home ways that you can 
see his uniqueness. First, he is superior to John the Baptist and all the Old Testament prophets. He's superior to them. He's unique from them. Second, in this text, we'll see he is superior to the law and to Moses. He's unique from the law. He's unique from Moses. He's different than Moses. And then third, we will see that he is the one and only superior revealer of God the Father. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus Christ. So those are the three big things. Three big things. And there's one question you might have in mind or that we're going to seek to answer today. What makes Jesus unique and why does it matter to me? If you were trying to answer a question with this message, what makes Him unique and then why does that matter? Uh, as one old preacher said, what of it? Okay, you've told me, but now what of it? What, how's it going to change my life? Well, I want to give you the answer up front. You can write this down. Hopefully through the message you'll see this expounded and expanded. Jesus is unique because He alone brings us grace and truth from God the Father. He alone brings us grace and truth. If you do not have a personal relationship with Him, why does it matter? Because if you don't have a personal relationship with Him, you cannot have God as your Father. If you don't have Jesus, you can't have God. They're inseparable. Let's take a few moments to look at this clearly. Let's read the text together. John 1, 15 through 18. John bore witness about Him and cried out, speaking about the Word become flesh. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law came through Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, The law came, excuse me, through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God except the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The uniqueness of Jesus. The Word, Jesus Christ, is superior to all the prophets. John the Baptist's testimony says that uh, He is superior. And John the Baptist's testimony speaks to you and to me. But often I hear people say, the Bible's just an old book. It doesn't... You know, talk to me directly. Look at this verse, verse 15. The, the, the best way to, to render this verse is John bears witness to the fact. John is still bearing witness today that Jesus is superior to all the prophets. John bears witness about Him and cries out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes before after me, ranks before me. So John says it in this text clearly. This is the second time, only the second time we see the present tense verb used. The first time we see it is back up uh, at the beginning of the, uh, of the, in the light is shining. You know, uh, if we look at verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. Verse 5 says, so John's duty from the beginning has been to bear witness of the light, to be a testimony of the light. Verse 5, the light shines. You see that present tense? 
It is shining in a sense in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then that is the only present tense until we come down to verse 15. John bears witness. John is still telling you and me today, John the Baptist, that Jesus is unique. He is supreme. He is over all things. The Word is more important than John the Baptist, and so therefore the Word is more important. Jesus Christ is more important. He is supreme and unique over all of the prophets. How do we arrive at that conclusion? Well, it's important to look back at John the Baptist. John the Baptist was six months older than his cousin Jesus. Six months older. Um, He was born and he began his ministry much earlier than Jesus began his ministry on the earth. The the picture we have in the Gospels is that John has a huge following before Jesus ever goes public, in a sense. Brings himself forward and presents himself to the world. But yet John says, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John the Baptist is either confused or he believes in the eternal Son of God. That's important. Many in our day, even cults, even good Christians confused on this point. They think there was the Father and then out of the Father came the Son at the birth. In other words, Jesus isn't eternal. That's not true. John saw Him as eternal. He saw that He existed before I existed. He was superior to me before I ever came into the scene. So John was born six months earlier. So how is Jesus superior? How is He before Him? How did He come before Him? In His eternal nature as the Word of God, He came before John the Baptist. Jesus, John is speaking to Jesus' eternal nature. And then he's also talking about his superiority. When we look closely, it's clear that John the Baptist is saying that Jesus' ministry is superior to my ministry. Oh, that we could have some men and women who had the humility of John the Baptist in our day. As great a man as John the Baptist was, Thousands of people following out into the desert, listening to him preach day after day, confronting the king of Israel with a a proclamation of his sin. He was a powerful figure, and yet he said, I am not even worthy to unloose the sandal strap of the Lord. I am so fallen, so debased, so minuscule in comparison to him and his uniqueness. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe." So we see that Jesus' ministry is being proclaimed as greater than John the Baptist. The statement is that even though his ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, predates Jesus' earthly ministry in time, it doesn't in uh, eternal fruit. Because John's ministry truly came to an end and Jesus never, Jesus' ministry will never come to end. Jesus is eternally existed as the Word of God. So He literally was born on the earth in the form of a man after John the Baptist, but He predates Him in eternity. And now Jesus has risen to and surpassed Him in His ministry. So John the Baptist has been at center stage in the focus of all mankind in a sense. And now He's moving to the side. He's getting out of the spotlight. He's stepping down in a sense. He's saying, my ministry is ending, his ministry. I must decrease, he says, he must increase. And so he's stepping out of the spotlight. Some of us need to step out of the spotlight in life. And this is a, a sub-point in a way 
But if you study the life of John the Baptist, he will convict you of the need of humility in your life. Try to put yourself where he is. The most loved and respected and revered and hated at the same time prophet in his day. The most unique human being to ever walk the face of the earth outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to even say he is greater than anything or any man born of woman. Greater than any of them. And yet he's stepping aside. And you and I will not step aside and let the Lord have his way in our lives today. So if John is willing to step aside, if John the Baptist is willing to be humble and broken before Christ, how much more broken should you be and should I be in his presence? John is greater than all the Old Testament prophets. So if Jesus is greater than John, then he's greater than all the others together. Matthew eleven eleven says, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So if Jesus is greater than him, he is greater than all. Jesus gave witness to the superiority of John. John gives witness to the superiority of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews joins the chorus in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, when he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in this last day, He has spoken to us by His Son. You see the uniqueness. In all these other times, God spoke through the mouth of a man to His people, and now He's speaking by His own unique and only Son, Jesus Christ. He's superior. He is above the, all of the rest. He is the greatest. And listen to what he says about the Son. The Father appointed Him the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus is superior. So how, how is Jesus unique? Number one, He's unique above all the prophets. That's our first answer to the question. How do we know He's unique? The second answer to the question is clearly, in this text, defined for us as He is superior to the law and Moses. Look in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was written by Moses, and this is the pinnacle of the Jewish faith. This is the top. This is the steeple. This is the greatest thing that the Jews have ever seen is the law. When the law is spoken of here, it can mean the whole Old Testament. But here, notice it says the law was given through Moses. So we know it's the first five books of the Bible. They would revere these books more than any of the other books. These are the holiest of the holy books, the law. And inside that, even, the law pertains to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The law came to us through Moses, from God through His servant Moses. And so John says, you have the greatest man in the Jewish faith, Moses. Okay? Even greater than Father Abraham because Moses received the law from God, the communication of what it takes to be right with God. You have that in Moses. And you have in Jesus grace and truth. He makes him superior to Moses even. And we're going to see that throughout the book, John compares Moses and Jesus. The Jews use the term uh, here to refer to the law, the specific law, the Ten Commandments and the first five books. John is contrasting the person of Moses with Jesus Christ in this passage, and he's going to continue to do it throughout the coming days. For the first time in this book, John writes the name Jesus Christ. Do you notice that? 
He's never said Jesus' name until verse 17. He builds an anticipation about who is this word. I can imagine in the minds of the Jewish reader, they're almost screaming now, tell us who the Messiah is. Tell us who the Word of God is. And he says, Jesus Christ. Boy, how that must have been like a dagger in the heart of the people who had hollered, crucify Him, crucify Him, give us Barabbas. And now John is clearly saying the eternal God, the Word of God is the eternal God, the Creator God, the light to all men. And they're now with anticipated breath. Who is it so we can worship Him? And then John says, Jesus Christ. And stabbed in the heart. We hollered for Him to be hung on a cross. They're reading this after His resurrection and ascension. Think about it. We often lose perspective. We think this is some written before Jesus died. No, this is after. They have been played a part. Many of the people who read this letter played a part in His crucifixion. And now they're reading, we've crucified the only Son of God. Do you know, I only you make a practical application here. When you're sharing the gospel, hold in reserve grace for a time. I, I want to tell you why. We're so quick to say, oh, God will forgive you. Oh, God loves you. Oh, God has grace. That people are never convicted about their sin and their need for Jesus Christ. People cannot be saved unless they know they need to be saved. If a man's drowning and he doesn't know he's drowning and you try to rescue him, he fights. He flails. He says, get off me, man. I don't need your help. And so we bring the gospel to people and we're like, Jesus loves you. And they're like, great. I know he does. I love myself. What's not the love about me? That's our gospel prayer. I catch myself all the time wanting to let people off the hook. They come with a problem and I immediately want to comfort. We need to take the approach of John, the gospel writer. Present the eternal nature of God and His righteousness and His law. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is pounding this person with, you're a failure, you're unacceptable, you have a sentence of death, you're not going to make it, you don't measure up. And then they cry out, please tell us how we can be saved from this terrible fate. Then we say, God has grace in Jesus Christ. You see how John has set them up to feel the aha moment in their life. We want the Word of God. We want the Messiah. John says, really? You had Him. Jesus Christ. You hung Him on a cross. All of a sudden, there's brokenness. There's repose in a sense. We need Him and we killed Him. And what do we do now? And then there's going to be hope all the way through because remember the point of the book, 2031. I'm writing these things that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God and that knowing it, you might believe in Him and have faith in Him and be saved. That's the point. Okay, so he's setting it up even now. Isn't it good to think about the Word of God and not just read uh, and glance over these verses? There's so much here. We never could cover it all. If we set out to do it, we couldn't. But uh, John loves the name Jesus. You know the name Jesus. It's just an interesting trivia. So you can play this in Trivial Pursuit of the Bible or something. I don't know. The word, the name Jesus is written 905 times in the whole New Testament. Okay? John writes it in this letter 237 times. More than a third of the, of the occurrences, or the quarter, over a quarter of the occurrences. Excuse me, I get my math right. I'm from West Alabama. Uh, they didn't teach us math real well. Uh, or I didn't learn it real well. They may have taught it well. 
over a quarter of them here are in one book, the name Jesus. Think about that. We often exalt him as the Lord, and he is. But John wants to make sure we never lose sight of the fact that he was a human, and he was a man, and his name was Jesus. Never mind. Now, when you're playing Trivial Pursuit of the Bible, you can just throw that out there and look smart. You know, you know Jesus is only in the Bible, New Testament, 905 times. That'll wow your friends. He combines the title Jesus Christ 19 times. More than any other gospel writer, he calls him Jesus Christ. He drives the point home. He's Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. And that makes sense. I told you the purpose of his book is to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. So it would make sense that he would do this. But what do we see in this verse? Jesus Christ, because it it, it sets him apart as a unique man, different than the prophet Moses. Moses was only a channel of the partial revelation of God. Jesus is the revelation of the whole essence of who God is. Moses is in part... Jesus is the whole. Jesus Christ is superior because He is the revelation of God, the radiance of His glory, Hebrews says, greater than any prophet or lawgiver or law. Under the law, God demands righteousness. Under the law, God demands righteousness. Under Jesus Christ, grace. Grace. Under Jesus Christ, grace, He gives righteousness to people. In the law, He requires it. In Jesus Christ, He gives righteousness. Under the law, righteousness is based on your good works. Under grace, it is based on Christ and His character. Under the law, blessings accompany obedience. Under grace, God bestows His blessing as a free gift. The law is powerless to secure righteousness for man and save man from sin and death. But through Jesus Christ, grace came to make sinners righteous before God. The very righteousness of God. There's a lot of similarities between our comparisons of the law and grace. There's comparisons and contrasts between Jesus and Moses. I want to run through some of them for you. Similarities between Jesus and Moses. Think about this. I was thinking about this all week. Moses and Jesus have to be saved from a king seeking to kill all the children less than two years and older. Have you ever thought about that? Moses born in, Pharaoh wants to kill off all the babies two years and older. Moses is rescued. Jesus is born. The king of the Jews wants to kill all the babies two years and older. Moses and Jesus are rescued by the Egyptians. Moses is rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, brought out of the river Nile and raised in the palace of Pharaoh. Jesus is rescued by the Egyptians because they gave him safe harbor from Herod the king when he was killing all the babies two years and under. Moses and Jesus are sent by God to deliver the chosen people of God. Moses was sent by God from the burning bush into Egypt to proclaim that God's going to set these people free. And then he acts out these uh, plagues and he brings them out. Jesus is sent by God to deliver his chosen people from their sins and give them eternal life. Moses and Jesus work great miracles that attest to their greatness. Moses works the plagues. Jesus heals people. Jesus is always healing people and he's always saying, I'm doing it for a sign that you might know that I am the Son of God or the Son of Man, or the Son of the Living God. Moses and Jesus set the captives free, and they lead the chosen people out of bondage and into freedom. Moses leads the people out of bondage of Egypt, brings them across the Red Sea, and takes them to the brink of the Promised Land. 
Jesus leads us free from sin. He who the Son has set free is free indeed, and now we're free and inheritors of eternal life, the promised land. So you see the similarities of these two men. Now let's look at some contrasts in their life. Moses is given refuge in the palace of Pharaoh. Jesus grows up in obscurity in a little village called Nazareth. Moses gets the preeminence. He gets the great place to live. Jesus gets the, you know, the outhouse. He lives in the penthouse. Jesus lives in the outhouse. Moses is not willing to lead the people. When he's confronted with leadership, he hides. I can't speak. I can't go. They won't believe me. Who will I say sent me? All these excuses. Jesus willingly leads his people. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life. I take it up. No one takes it from me. I give it freely. All those statements, he's doing it willingly. Moses can only deliver the chosen people of God from physical slavery. He can't deliver them from their sin. That's their need. All he can do is set them free from Egypt, where they don't have to make bricks anymore. But Jesus sets us free, not only physically, but spiritually, from sin and the corruption of sin. Moses receives the law of God and delivers it to the people of God. This is the standard, Moses says. Live this way and live. Disobey and die. That's his message from Mount, uh, from Mount uh, Sinai. Thank you. I was wanting to say Mount Zion, bad. Jesus delivers grace from God and says, Come to Mount Zion that you might have life and freedom and live eternally. Differences. Moses upholds the standard. Jesus gives grace. Moses fails the people. He sins in anger. He has a moral flaw. He can't go to the promised land because he strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock. He disobeys. So he gets to go to the brink and no further. But Jesus never sinned. And he goes into the promised land before us to prepare a place for us. Moses failed and in, in his sin. He fails and the people had to go in and themselves conquer the land. Jesus conquers sin and death for us on our behalf and then goes into the promised land and sets up our dwelling place for us so that all we literally do is walk into what He's already done. Do you see the contrast between the two? Do you see why John says, Moses gave you the law, you love Him? It's almost like, duh, why wouldn't you love Jesus? He gives you grace and truth. It's almost like, why would you hold on to the old thing, you Jewish people? Why would you not embrace the new thing that's come from God? The unique one, the Son of God. What a blessing to see. And there's more contrast, I'm sure. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in 3, 3 through 6, contrast them. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See, he's unique. Moses was a servant. Christ is the son. And so, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is greater than the law because he fulfilled it, because he conquered sin when it, when it can only... Rev- when the law can only reveal sin, and because He offers righteousness by grace, and, it can, and the law can only require righteousness. 
The law requires what you can't do. Jesus fulfills what we cannot do and gives it to us as a gift. The grace of Christ is the pinnacle of Christianity. There is no one like Jesus Christ. In one sense, we all of humanity receive grace from God through Jesus Christ. This is called common grace. If you are alive today, breathing, eating, having a shelter, a family, friends, a job, success in any form or fashion, popularity in any sort or fashion, if you have enjoyment of the creation, if you have anything today that is good, it comes down from the Father of lights. It comes down through Jesus Christ Himself. Common grace. Paul says in Acts 17, in Him we live and move and have our being. And he was talking to lost people there. In other words, you exist because He exists. You get that from Jesus Christ. You aren't here today unless Jesus has allowed you to be. The sad thing is that most of us don't acknowledge that every good gift comes down from the Father of light. In the book of Hosea, God describes how careless we are in thankless enjoyment of God's good gifts. Hosea is a great book. I I want to challenge you to read it. We can't read it for time's sake. But you need to read it. And if I'm not careful, I'll preach a mini-sermon about divorce that I believe comes from Hosea. That's not the point today, so don't don't let me get sidetracked. If I start getting sidetracked, raise your hand and say, "No, no, don't do that. We don't have time for that. But Hosea, short synopsis. Hosea is a prophet. God says, go take Gomer, the prostitute, marry her. I got to marry her? You know, I can imagine. Not only is she a prostitute, Hosea, she's going to keep being a prostitute, and you're going to keep being her husband. Shocking all. (laughs) Boy, Hosea, you know, bless the Lord. You know, he just... So excited about his marriage day. I know the Lord's going to give me a blessed woman that will be a humble servant. Proverbs 31. I can see all these pictures in his mind. A virgin wife. All these things I wanted all my life. And then God says, now, not, not to cause any problems for you, Hosea, but go get the worst woman in town. You're going to marry her. And she's going to keep being the worst. And you're going to keep being her husband. That's what you have to look forward to. Now, some of you men thought you had it hard when you married your wife. But you didn't have it that hard. And you don't have it that hard today. Hosea 2, 5 through 8. Now listen to this description. And remember I said most of us are thankless about the gifts of God. Listen to what he says about Gomer. Really he's talking about the children of Israel. For their mother, he says, talking about Gomer, has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me, listen to who she, Israel here, listen to who she says gives her her good things. My lovers give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. All the good gifts that are on earth come down from the Father of light and they're saying, these false gods give me all these things. Or in Gomer's, in Gomer's real life analogy, Hosea doesn't give me these things, but these prostitutes, men that come into me as a prostitute, they give me what I want. They give me what I need. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. Then she shall say, listen to the change, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. And she said, 
She did not know. Listen to this, what God is saying. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used to worship false gods. You see the picture? Hosea has been funding, giving the payment for his wife to these others. She's been receiving it from them, thinking that they're the one providing for her, but the whole time Hosea, behind the scenes, is providing for his wife. And she's praising these these unworthy men, dirty and defiled men, praising them, giving them honor. And Hosea is in the background. And God says, I'm like that. He's saying it to you. You worship your job. You worship those, your family. You worship the creation. You worship all these good things you have. You worship the things instead of me. And I'm telling you, I'm behind all those things, giving you all those things so that you will worship me. And I believe as a believer that all of us who are believers one day will be brought to that because God will hedge us in. Eventually, He will bring us to a point in life where we can't do anything but say it must have come from God. He will be praised among His people. And so, He is unique. He's unique from the prophets. He's unique from the law. He is uh, unique as the revealer of God, the Father. There was a young boy who I got an email. It's a, I don't think it's a true story, but it was an email anyway. It catches the essence of what I want to say here in closing. That he is unique as the one who tells us who God is. Because there was a boy in a class. I think Cody sent me this, if I'm not mistaken. I'll give Cody credit anyway. There was a boy in class. There was a window. The teacher says, talking about God, um, says, tells the boy, look outside. Can you see the grass and the trees? Yes. Can you see the sunlight? Yes. Can you see God? Do you believe they exist? He says, yes. Why? Because I can see them. He says, do you see God? And the little boy said, no. And he said, so therefore we can ascertain from your statement that God doesn't exist because we can't see God. So a little girl raised her hand. She wanted to come to the rescue of her friend. And she said, uh, can I ask a question? And the guy thought, he, I've done well. I, they're already asking questions. said, can the whole class see the, professor, the teacher? Yes. Can the whole class see who he is and recognize him as our teacher? Yes. Can the class see our teacher's brain? No. Well, from this we see that our teacher does not have a brain because we cannot see it. And what I'm saying to you is God has revealed Himself through the creation. And people look at it all the time and say they don't see God. But when you see Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit gives you faith to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't have to see it. You believe it. Hebrews 11.1 says, He is the evidence of things hoped for, the consequence of things not seen. All of life is not seen. You don't have to see Him to know He exists. And He does exist. He has been revealed to us. One of the Russian cosmonauts, astronauts is what we call them, who first went into orbit around the sphere of the earth. When he was orbiting the earth, radioed back to Russia a message like this. 
I have seen outer space. I have not seen God, so He does not exist. Same statement as the teacher to the little boy in class. Same reasoning. Aaron, when I told him that, uh, told that, told me something like this, that on the opposite of that was one of our astronauts who, after seeing the, sun, the earth rise up above the moon in outer space, began to quote Genesis chapter 1. You see the difference? They're looking at the same thing. One is looking through natural eyes. I can't see God, so He doesn't exist. That's how the Jews were looking at God. I don't see God in this world. I don't see the Messiah. I can't see Him. I can't see Him. And John is saying, if you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. He does exist. You see Him through Jesus. And you see Him through the eyes of faith, which can only be given to the children of God. And so let's thank God that we might be like the astronaut from the United States, not like the astronaut from Russia. That we might see him in Jesus and say he is God. The creation proclaims that there is a creator God and Jesus Christ proclaims there is a redeemer God. You can see the creator in the creation. You'll see the redeemer in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So today I beg you to see Jesus, a unique son unlike any other. What makes Jesus unique? He's greater than John the Baptist and the Old Testament prophets. He's greater than the law and Moses. He is the greatest revealer of the nature of God. And so we come to a close. John 3.16 is an appropriate close to this message. What do I want you to take home? These truths, but I hope they impact you, that you might see that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That verse is rightly put this way. I put it in literal words. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His unique Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish in hell, but will have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we beg You to help us to see with eyes of faith that You do exist. I know that we will see that when we see Jesus Christ. I thank you that he is superior to everything else. And I pray that you would help everyone in this room to see him as superior to all else. And Lord, I pray that we would trust in you today as the one true source of revelation of who the Father is. And then that we would believe in you and the consequence of that belief is eternal life. We praise you and glorify your name. And it's in your holy name we pray.